Some months ago, I had the pleasure of talking to, to Simon Elmer about his uh, experience of fighting back against the lockdown and uh, what it meant to be a public intellectual uh, opposing uh, the state and the state's uh, diktats over the COVID-19 crisis. And we mentioned at that time uh, that Simon had put all these thoughts uh, into a book entitled The Road to Fascism, which I have here. And uh, we said at the time that the, the book was just out, I hadn't had a chance to read it. So uh, we said we would come back to discuss the book in a bit more detail, which is why we're here today. Uh, Simon, welcome back. Hello, David. Thank you for having me back. Looking forward to talking with you. Uh, well, it was a good conversation last time. Let's hope uh, I don't let you down. Um, <laughs> I, I want to start off. You, the, the book's entitled The Road to Fascism, and this obviously has elements of uh, you know, the road to serfdom, um, uh, the, the, the famous uh, 1940s book written by uh, Hayek. Um, but you start off, you define fascism, and you quote Robert Paxson as follows. Um, the quote is, at its fullest development, fascism redrew the frontiers between private and public, sharply diminishing what had once been untouchably private. Um, it changed the practice of citizenship from the enjoyment of constitutional rights and duties to participation in mass ceremonies of affirmation and conformity. Um, this does have enormous echoes of COVID-19 and the state's response to it. Um, could I ask you to expand a little bit on, on the parallels you see between fascism as, as it used to be defined and uh, the, the the nature of the, the the imposition of state diktats that we've just uh, lived through. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting quote, isn't it? Um, I mean, when I first read it, he goes on to talk about uh, changing the relations between the individual and the collectivity, uh, about uh, expanding powers of the party and the state, but total control, and also it talks about unleashing aggressive emotions hitherto known in Europe only during war or social revolution. You know, when I read this, I was like, wow, that's a pretty good description of what we've just been going through. Um, you know, when I read it, it was in probably still, we were still under lockdown at the time. Um, <clears throat> I got the book on the back of reading that quote um, by Robert Paxton. He's an academic, a US academic. Um, and like most academic books, he wanted to talk about how is this relevant to the, the kind of the present time. Uh, the book was written in 2004, and I think it's in the last chapter. He, he kind of looks about the return. You know, people are always warning about the return of fascism. And I was very struck that <clears throat> this was a U.S. academic and all the countries he was looking at, all the instances in which fascism could have potentially have returned are in things like South American countries, um, in the kind of places that the U.S. Um, invades or sets up public governments and so on. And it didn't seem to, it didn't seem to occur to him that in fact fascism had returned in his own country, in the United States of America, or that the West in general, under the guiding hand of, of uh, the US, was returning to the type of authoritarianism, the erasure of independent, independent or individual liberties, of the, the unleashing of aggressive emotions, um, which, characterized, which, which, which were characteristic of his own definition of fascism. Um, so I think that... <clears throat> That attribution of fascism to other countries, other economic systems, struck me from the very beginning. Um, 
when I wrote this first chapter, uh, The Return of Fascism of my book, um, the, the Ukrainian situation was kind of emerging. Um, and again, you know, Ukraine for a long time now, at least until uh, February 2022, was described in the Western press as neo-fascist. Um, or neo-Nazi, rather. And then as soon as um, Russia went into East, you know, the, the Donbass and so on, suddenly we started calling um, Putin's government, you know, the, 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 Russia, the Russian Republic, fascist and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> I was very struck that fascism is always used to describe what you're not. <laughs> and that's the way it's used. I think we talked about this the first time. It's used as an insult by, particularly by the left, but by liberals, by anarchists, by a huge range of people to denigrate something as beyond... Um, beyond consideration, if you like. Um, and of course, that was a discourse that had been used and continues to be used against us, that anyone who uh, questions the authority of the estate or the, uh, the, uh, the, the unquestionable rightness of this new thing called science with a capital S, this new religion of science, is in some way far right or aligned with fascism. Um, and also, when I start, first started writing my book and publishing the individual articles um, on my website, um, there was a real reaction against the use of the term fascism as well, as if this was something which was a purely historical political formation and was no longer, uh, no longer useful as a description of contemporary uh, politics or contemporary geopolitics. So I think the resistance to use fascism to describe the West, and we have to remember, fascism is a European political movement. It was, it was born in Europe. It came out of Europe, and it, it pretty much conquered Europe for you know a number of years um, during the Second World War. And before that, you know, Mussolini set up his government in 1922. So it wasn't in a flash in a pan. It was probably the very first. Yes, it was undoubtedly the very first new political uh, movement, and certainly a new form of governance that we've had in a very, very long time in Europe. And I didn't believe that it had gone away. I thought it had come back. I think it had the potential to come back, but it wasn't happening in these other places. It wasn't necessarily or only or exclusively happening in the Ukraine. I think the real threat of fascism isn't um, uh, sort of men dressed up with Nazi symbols, marching around in the black, giving kind of Hitler signs. I think the real threat of fascism is its return to the... Um, the political economy of the West. And that's what I see is happening over the last um, three years. Um, and again, when I first started using this term, people were very averse to it. Now, I'm not happy to say, I regret to say, a lot more people have come around to agreeing with me that to describe this new international technocratic form of governance under which we're living, the extraordinary authoritarianism of the state, which it is overseeing, and the extraordinarily rapid transformation of our culture and values of Western democracy, flawed values nevertheless, but in principle, like freedom of speech, like coming to a consensus through debate, like um, freedom of thought and conscience and so on, the new cultural forms that have emerged to accommodate this new authoritarianism and this, into the, this, this rule, this new form of governance by international technocracies, is also, I think, worthy of the description of, of fascism. So fascism is primarily a political economy, but it can also be used to describe the kinds of ideologies and cultures which have emerged from that. Like you, I was using the term fascist to describe what we were looking at, and, and like you, I was getting a certain amount of pushback. And in, 
Some of it's perfectly understandable. The obvious upfront nature of the thing that we now call fascism is not the obvious upfront nature of the 1920s, 30s and 40s version. It's not uh, ostensibly military. It's not uh, marching and strutting and it's not nationalist. Right? It's changed in certain ways, but it remains authoritarian. It remains aggressive. It remains um, a, an attack on the individual and, and, uh, and a, a weakening of, the indiv of individual rights as against the right of the state and the greater good. So there are many similarities. I want to pick out a couple of the changes. Um, uh, one is it's not nationalist anymore, it's globalist. And this throws, I think, a lot of people off the hunt when they're looking for fascism. Now, um, you've, you mentioned this uh, in your book, I'll quote a little bit here. Um, you, you talk about the rise of global governance. You so said over the past two and a half years, this all but universally embraced common good, the ultimate irreducible, transparent and utterly illusory uh, referent by which all biosecurity measures have been justified, has been decided not only or even primarily by the elected governments of nation states, but also and with increasing authority by the various institutions and organisations of global governance. Uh, that have been formed by the West, mostly since the Second World War. And then you list them, and it's, it's, it's virtually two pages of listing. You start with the Bank of International Settlements, the UN, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, NATO, and on it goes. The two pages of international bodies that now form global government in all but name. And we know across a wide range of of, of subject areas, including education and healthcare, um, that what our individual governments do and argue so passionately for doesn't originate with those governments, doesn't originate with the civil service, doesn't originate in our country at all, but originates in these international global organisations. So there's another aspect I want to get to you that uh, get to as well that, that where contemporary fascism differs from the historical one. But this seems to be one of the absolutely fundamental changes, and not for the better, that fascism has gone global. Is that how you see it? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, that, that is one of the kind of the, the, the comebacks that people say that fascism is, is, is nationalist. And it's certainly in, it was nationalist in terms of its its kind of cultural ideology around the idea of you know the uh, you know the, the Aryan race and so on, but that's very much in Germany. Um, in Italy, it wasn't quite. It, you didn't have that kind of nationalist sense at all. I think um, they were kind of prominent Jewish members of the uh, the fascist party in Mussolini's government and so on and so forth. So I don't think we should reduce that 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 idea of fascism simply to the German model. And as I said, fascism conquered most of Europe for you know certainly during the the entire war period. And was in places like France, for instance, the Vichy government that set up was quite ready to adopt its kind of tenets. Um, and of course, fascisms—it's um, it's hard to see them as simply a, a single government, but it definitely had ideas of conquest. It didn't want to restrain itself. It wasn't interested in fascism in what in a single country. It had a model of conquest, um, which it was very successful in perpetuating. Um, but yes, one of the key differences is now one of the most. Uh, worrying things about it 
um, in the Second World War, at least, you had some sort of opposition. That's kind of emerging now, I think, with the new agreements between uh, between the Russian Republic and, uh, and China. Um, but yes, the in a sense, Europe has got together on the back of the European Union, of course, um, and all these other international technocracies, which were formulated, as you said, mostly except for the Bank of International Settlements after the Second World War, precisely in order to stop individual nations in Europe from, you know, falling back, as it were, into fascism. But in fact, a lot of these international technocracies have themselves become unaccountable, unelected, and immensely powerful international technocracies, um, which are imposing fundamental changes on the democracies that they're meant to defend. Um, I mean, just to pull out a few instances, um, everyone's wondering at the moment where this idea of 15-minute cities came from and why it is that local authorities, which we're meant to be voting for today, are suddenly imposing these on their on their constituents without any kind of democratic process at all. Um, we know, of course, that the 15-minute city has been a, you know, is a concept dreamed up by the World Economic Forum, which has absolutely no legislative authority over us, no mandate from us at all. And yet somehow, somehow, our local authorities, councils, and I've worked a lot with councils, and the people that run them are a funny little bunch of people. And somehow they've been told by whom? By their by their party, by their government, by whom? By their mayor, to implement an idea by the World Economic Forum. Um, I find that extraordinary, and I think we need to investigate why that's happening. Of course, there's even more serious um, programs being implemented in this country and across the West, like digital ID, like um, some forms of um, where the World Health Organization and now got this, you know, a, a form of digital ID, kind of the health pass. Um, we've got things like central bank digital currency, which it seems every country in the world is adopting. I think we've got about 148 at the moment who are looking into it. Um, you know, this is being imposed in this country by the Bank of England. Again, this is not a government body. This is a private company. Um, uh, what else have we got? We've got the tenets of environmental fundamentalism coming out of Agenda 2030. That's at least something that our government did sign up to, although I don't remember them asking us whether we voted for it at all. So one of the ways to define fascism, the political economy of fascism, historically, is that it comes out of failed democracies. And in the West, democracy has failed Absolutely, undoubtedly, I think the sort of the farce that we're going through of electing for this is is literally that it's a farce because it's quite clear if you listen to um, Rishi Sunak, our unelected prime minister, who is you know when he was when he was chancellor, he was the first person to start pushing central bank digital currency, or if you listen to uh, Keir Starmer, who recently was asked, "What's your choice between Westminster and the World Economic Forum?" and he said without a blink of an eye, "Oh, the World Economic Forum." And I thought that was grounds for him resigning his post immediately because he was elected. I don't know what constituency he is, but he was elected by his constituents to represent them. And he was represented by the members of his party, the Labour Party, to represent the people of Britain sufficiently to form a government. God forbid it. He certainly wasn't elected to implement the dreamed up, um, frankly, totalitarian programs and technologies of the World Economic Forum. And yet he had no hesitation in saying, oh, no, I'm definitely on the side of the Economic Forum. And it seems somehow that, well, somehow, I think it's been 40, 50 years of neoliberalism, that all our democratic institutions, 
our political parties, our civil society, our unions, um, all the institutions that constitute civil society, everything that could have and was meant to provide a barrier, a check, a forum for debate and questioning to this vast takeover that we've seen over the last few years, have been co-opted by these international technocracies. I don't think it's any more, well, actually it is, it's more complex, but it's partly because of money. It's It's the fact that people like Bill Gates have simply bought up, it seems, every medical institution in the globe. Um, But it's more than that, I think. They've also been co-opted ideologically as well. Um, You know, the kind of meetings I have with people, someone got up the other day, an architect, and he said he went to a conference. All they talked about was having to combat crisis, global warming, and the surety that we had to do our bit to stop it. And there was absolutely no questioning at all by anyone about whether there was any truth in this, or what um, these tenants were serving, what it means to net zero, um, you know, what are 15-minute cities actually benefiting, who are they, and all this sort of stuff. So there's been a financial takeover of these institutions about democracy, but there's also been an ideological one as well, and it's come very, very quickly. Um, not only environmental fundamentalism, but kind of transhumanism, most, you know, re- most horrendously represented by kind of so-called trans rights, uh, the ideology of woke, These are all very recent things, I think, and yet they seem to have been adopted without question by not only our governments, our political parties, our unions, but also by our education institutions, by our our, um, cultural institutions as well. Now, I don't think there's been any ideological movement which has achieved that rapidity and completeness of colonization of education, institution and parliament as woke has done, if we want to call this for a kind of an umbrella thing, um, since fascism. And I think there's parallels between that. Um, I never voted for the principles of woke to be things that I have to sign up to in order to get a job. I don't want my children going to school and being taught the principles of trans rights. I don't want to go into education uh, or cultural institutions and be bombarded by the propaganda of things I don't agree with. These are things that very recently, a few years ago, we would have said, hold on, We don't have official ideologies in a democracy, but you do when you're living in a fascist state. And I think that's what we are in now. So that's an excellent analysis of what we're we're facing. Um, We we talked about the globalist aspect of this. um, And you you raised the very good question and a question that we've often had to face and not necessarily found easy answers uh, to, which is why do all the councillors, all the all the organisations, all the various institutions which have surrendered to this ideology, why do they do it? Who tells them what to do? Who says, right, well, this, this week, Lance, it's 15-minute cities. Right? Who actually issues the instruction? And why do they just meekly comply? It's the meek compliance that's very puzzling. Now, um, so I'm, I'm going to suggest to you that there's... There's the global aspect of this, which is very much top-down. What makes it particularly dangerous and particularly successful is that simultaneously there's been another assault on the liberties, which is bottom-up, and it's one of this ideological uh, uh, capture of the West and uh, the ideological surrender of our people to the ideas which you've summarised as woke. I'll give you an example of how this plays out. Um, there's a left-wing 
um, SMP socialist feminist lesbian called Joanna Cherry. And she's not awfully happy with certain aspects of the woke agenda, namely the trans agenda and the fact that uh, biological males have been admitted into women's into women only spaces such as toilets and changing rooms and I, I absolutely agree with her position on this. So she was booked at to have a conversation, a public conversation in Edinburgh, City of the Enlightenment, Edinburgh, in a comedy club, would you believe? A comedy club where the idea is people are meant to be saying quite outrageous things and challenging the norm because in there lies comedy. So uh, she's been cancelled from this. She's been no platformed. But the comedy club is saying, well, it, it would have been entirely wrong for us to no platform Joanna Cherry because we don't agree with the political views. That would have been wrong. No, the reason she can't appear in our club is our staff have such violent objection to her anti-trans hate speech that they are refusing to turn up to, to work on that night. We cannot therefore staff the premises. We cannot therefore um, provide basic levels of safety and security. And therefore, we're very sorry, but we've no option other than to cancel the event. So the cancellation was from the bottom up. It was the staff who cancelled Joanna Cherry. And I've seen this operate in other places at other times. Um, very nearly, I saw um, the beautiful saxophonist Gillard Artsman. Uh, he was very nearly cancelled from a, from a jazz um, a concert recital in Glasgow because the staff in the venue had been told so many things about his political views, things that actually were not true, they hadn't read any of his political views, but they had been told lots of scary things about his political views, and they were threatening to walk out. And it was only saved by, by Gillard himself going to the staff, say, I'm here, if you have any questions about anything that, I, that I've written or said, ask me now, I'll answer any questions. And with that, the opposition kind of ebbed away. But if he hadn't confronted it in that, op in that open manner, that that concert might have been cancelled. Joanna's been cancelled. And it's coming from the bottom up. So it's coming from the people being convinced or I think not so much convinced, more intimidated and overwhelmed by the ideology and not finding the ability to resist. How does one resist this creeping fascism? Because it presents itself as intrinsically good and intrinsically scientific and intrinsically right, even though it's intrinsically irrational. Um, it's a strange conflict. Um, do, you, do you see this bottom-up mechanism uh, in operation? And if you do, how would you suggest people learn to resist? Yeah, I'm not sure about the second one. Um, I actually, I definitely agree that this is a bottom-up thing. In the, late, the latter part, the second part of my book, um, not all fascisms are totalitarian, um, and not all totalitarianisms are fascism, but fascism, which is successful, if you like, 
kind of inevitably moves towards a kind of a totalitarian system of domination. Um, and in the latter, latter part of my book, I think the last two chapters, I look at one of the best writers about totalitarianism, which is Hannah Arendt, the German political theorist. He was a sort of an escapee from um, the Third Reich. Um, she got out, fortunately, just before, oh, well, she, she managed to escape. And she wrote her famous book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And in it, she's very eager to differentiate totalitarianism, the uniqueness of it, this novel form of governance, as she calls it, from other forms of tyranny or dictatorship or so on and so forth, which, of course, have been around for thousands of years. And one of the things she, and we can talk about them in detail later, but one of the things she particularly uh, focuses on is exactly what you said. Tyranny and dictatorship come from top down. And there's only a certain degree of success, I think, that you can have in a system of oppression, of control, of domination, which only comes from the top. If you want a successful society, if you want a productive society, you can, of course, oppress people till they become basically a prison state. Um, but it's not going to be very productive. It's not going to be successful. It's kind of got a, it's got a, a time limit on it. But you can have a very successful productive society if that oppression, if it's not really the right word, but that form of control is not something which comes from above, but which comes from the bottom up. And that's when the role of ideology becomes absolutely crucial to the success of that, uh, the functioning of the state. Um, <clears throat> there's a move beyond that, I think, as well, which is about transhumanism. Um, Hannah Arendt also says that the ultimate goal of a totalitarian society is to render human beings redundant to its, to its functioning. Um, human beings, even if, you know, why go about ideologically... Um, indoctrinating human beings when you can take any instances of choice with their hands. So something like central bank digital currency, digital ID, 15-minute cities, these are going to be enforced, imposed by automatic systems um, in which you don't need someone, you know, you don't need a guard there. You don't need someone to say, well, you can spend your money on this, you can't spend your money on that. The central bank digital currency will do it otherwise. But to go back to your point, I think, yeah, another, another of the um, primary evidence, if you like, one of the key evidences that we are living or moving into a totalitarian system is because it does seem that this, this, um, this, this control of thought, this no playing, this... this um, uh, the overseeing of speech, thought, expression, art, culture, anything at all, um, is not being done by the police, it's not being done by the government, it's not being done by the councils, although they're all contributing to it. It's being done by the people themselves. Um, I, think, <clears throat> I think the COVID moment, you know, we talked about that last time, that two years where we descended into um, something like a Stasi state where everyone was watching everyone else. Um, you know, the police came out with extraordinary figures on how many people were ringing them up and saying, I think my next door neighbor might be breaking lockdown rules. So that encouraged a sort of, uh, it, it kind of authorized that sort of behavior that by, um, by, uh, by reporting someone who was not towing the line, you know, that phrase that they use, not doing your bit, um, that became seen not as something which is, you know, you should be guilty about, but as the highest form of civic virtue which is to not only be beat into the government, but to do the duty, if you like, of the secret police. Um, 
I think COVID, COVID was that moment, but I think also it's in our technologies as well. Um, you know, every time you go to, you order a hamburger in McDonald's, um, if you order it on your iPhone, um, afterwards it will send you something saying, how do you think you did with it, how we did to this? If I order a book from Amazon, afterwards it will say, how was that experience for you? If I book a hotel, afterwards they'll write to me and say, could you give us some feedback on it? So we're in a kind of culture, I think. We're in kind of a technology. Um, technology has created a culture in which we're constantly being asked to pass judgment on people. Of course, social media is the, the kind of the exemplar of that. So I think this generation of young people who have been brought up and very rapidly indoctrinated into the principles of woke. Woke is a fascist ideology. It makes no platforming and censorship a default option. And it doesn't engage in debate because, as you said, it sees its principles, whether that's that men or women can change sex, um, that, um, you know, we can go into them later maybe, that these are unquestionable um, truths that man-made, you know, that man-made, uh, that, that environment, the, world, the, the, the globe is warming because of man-made uh, carbon emissions. These are things which are unquestionable. They are religious tenets. Um, and when you've got that combination of young people who are absolutely sure they are right, which of course is that the, that's what young people do. I can still remember when I was young and I thought I was absolutely right as well. What's changed now is that assurity, that absolute certainty of being correct and the anger of this world that as they grow up, they're beginning to realize what a state this world is and what they've been given as their inheritance. That anger with the assurity of being right has been turned by very clever people into a way to control all of us by taking the, um, the frankly infantile beliefs of a very small part of the population. Um, they have managed to use that to control the rest of us who don't agree with them. Um, I think that's the big difference now, and that's what fascism did as well. It placed itself, it placed the authority and the power and the wealth of the state in the service of what was originally a kind of a marginal political and ideological movement. As you said, you know, Mussolini began as some form of socialist, um, but he very quickly became a fascist. Fascism is very good at using the power of the state to take extremist positions and make them a mainstream ideology for controlling the whole of the population as well. You know, I, I live in London, I live in central London, and, you know, when I go to galleries now, if I go to a museum, if I go to a show, I'm always worried that I'm going to have to face this kind of woke ideology, and I'm very careful about not going, going there. But, you know, I talk to people in pubs and stuff, and I actually think the real population that believes, you know, the real believers, the COVID faithful, the environmental fundamentalists, the woke uh, compliant... These are actually quite a small group of people. I think they're young, they're university educated, if you can call it education, and they mostly live in North, and North London. Um, but they have got the power of the state behind them. This sort of image that we're inundated with daily of a handful of people walking along a street with some banners saying, just stop oil. The reason that they're allowed to do that is because they're protected by the police. And I think that's a kind of a model of how... Um, the state that we live in now, this kind of totalitarian, this beginning to be totalitarian state, by attributing consensus to something which doesn't have a consensus amongst the people, amongst the actual population, by protecting that, um, that 
these marginal views and elevating them to orthodoxies. They're able to take very, very extremist and unquestioned ideas like environmental fundamentalism, like trans rights, um, like you know the, the COVID, the Church of COVID, and they make them mainstream. They make them the norm, and they pretend that it's actually got a consensus. Um, and that's a very dangerous thing. One of the aspects of this um, that that propels it forward is the uh, degree to which the faithful to the woke ideology um, perceive huge risk. Um, the, 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 the rationale behind the extreme positions they take is that the threat is, is extreme. So we don't have the flu. We've got a global pandemic that will wipe us out. We don't have pollution. Um, we've got uh, runaway tipping point global warming, which will wipe us out. We don't have people who are confused about sexuality, we have transgender people who are a unique people unto themselves and who are being literally murdered and exterminated. It's only if you believe the hype, the woke believe the hype, that they can justify with some degree of internal rationality, even though the overall position is irrational, that they can justify the lockdown, they can justify the abuse that can justify the disruption, the throwing beans at uh, great works of art and, and other nonsense like this. It doesn't make any sense on the surface, but when you take into account the great evil, capitalised I would suggest, that they seek to save us from, it all becomes, it all becomes justified in, uh, in hindsight. Um, you mentioned um, also the issue of religion, and it's very much a religion, I would agree with that. Um, in your book, you quote uh, Milan Kundera as follows. Uh, Totalitarian, totalitarianism is not only hell, but is also the dream of paradise, the age-old dream of a world where everybody would live in harmony, united by a common will and faith, without secrets from one another. If, totalitarian, if totalitarianism did not exploit these archetypes, which are deep inside of us and rooted deep in all religions, it would never attract so many people, especially due, during the early phase of its existence. Once the dream of paradise starts to turn into reality, however, uh, here and there people begin to crop up who stand in its way, and so the rules of paradise must build a little gulag on the side of Eden. In the course of time, the gulag grows bigger and more perfect, while the adjoining paradise gets smaller and poorer. Um, I thought that was a, a very good quote, but the, the key issue of the religious aspect of this and the selling of paradise, um, utopia is just around the corner. If only, if only we could destroy the insert buzzword, patriarchy, oil industry, um, we could achieve net zero, what, what, whatever the, the, the thing that needs destroyed happens to be, it's standing in, way, in the way of utopia, of paradise, 
of a, a secular version of the kingdom of God on earth, of the perfection that, that mankind really is, they believe, uh, if only we could eliminate these old-fashioned ideas. And um, so you, we end up with a religion, we end up with a, a, a desire for utopia that, that energises the thing, uh, but it's based on very fundamental and irrational beliefs, and it fails to have uh, an understanding of, for example, what human beings are. And uh, this disconnect from reality, uh, coupled with the desire for utopia and the belief that if they can just crush the opposition, utopia will emerge, makes it all the more dangerous. Um, so you, you then go on to explore the role of, of human rights and the rights agenda and the selling of fascism by selling the utopia it's meant to, it's meant to achieve. Um, and uh, could you expand a little bit on on this on this particular line? On in what ways are uh, are the rights agenda and the desire for the end of all suffering being being exploited to actually increase the amount of oppression? Uh, that that we that our societies are imposing on all of us. Yeah, it's a very complex one, isn't it? I think. I mean, first of all, um, you know, from the beginning, I've I've written about, uh, you know, I call them the COVID faithful. I thought it was a, the founding of a new church. Um, you know, our own Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, basically laid down the the tenets of um, of his own church and became a kind of a spokes spokesman for. Um, uh, for, for the for the coffee church, um, I think religions always rise when the complexity of the world becomes too much to understand. Um, um, utopias are about, as you said, um, reducing things to single ideas, um, usually violent ones, um, <clears throat> which gives us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Um, you either have to give things up, or you have to get rid of something, or, or whatever. Um, I think the world is now so complex, and not only that, but through our technology, we are exposed to the complexity of the world all the time. You know, most of us get up, we'll turn on some social media, and we'll see a whole range of things, something about the coronation, something about Just Stop Oil, something about an environmental disaster, something about a war going on in the country that a few months ago we didn't know about. Um, and, you know, something about something's going on in Sudan and something. And that complexity becomes very threatening to us because we're constantly told by the media that we need to understand this, we need to have a position on it, we need to say something about it. Um, and that's fairly new, I think, in, you know, in, 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 in how we understand ourselves and the world. And <clears throat> I think religion fills in that space when it comes in. And by religion, I mean kind of ideologies which are... Um, I guess, fundamentalist ideologies. And they come in and they say, it's okay, we're going to explain this. We're going to find out what the essence of the problem is. And we're going to tell you how to overcome this. Um, and the environmental, you know, fundamentalism is a, is a kind of a religion, which reduces the extraordinary complexities of what we're facing. Um, 
in, in capitalism, in the nature of capitalism having to expand, about the diminishment in natural resources, about the, the, the difficulties of, of pollution, in how we feed, house, and give energy to a growing population. In other words, you know, the future of the world. This is an extraordinary complex series of situations, um, as, or sorry, factors. But <clears throat> they don't present this kind of immediate and present danger, which is the apocalypse, the end of the world. Now, the amount of times people put up these, these kind of timelines that were given by the environmental fundamentalists, which started about 40 years ago when they said, you know, we were having, what was it, ice caps, and then it was global warming, and we were going to, the world was going to be over in 10 years, and then 20 years, and then 30 years, and so on and so forth. Um, but, of course, if you've got a terrified um, population and you say to them, I'm going to scare the hell out of you, but I'm going to offer you a chance of salvation. You've got a population which is very controlled. I lived in America for a few years, um, sort of a couple of a decade or so ago, um, <clears throat> and I saw that this population. Every time you turn on the TV, it was wall-to-wall news about shootings and killings and drugs and breakdown of society and stuff. And I said to one of my students there, I said, well, "What's all this about?" And she said, "They were scared. They were scared all the time." And I've watched with horror how the UK, which has been kind of merging into the, whatever it is, 52nd state of the US for some time now, has produced a population which is always scared, which is always being terrorized. Um, and then offered, we're becoming a more religious population, I think. You know, we used to sort of look down our noses a little bit at the US, at the US citizens as being, you know, very, very fundamentalist and very religious. Um, we've become religious in a different way now. We found our different religions. We found the religions of woke of environmental fundamentalism, of COVID and so on. Um, and it offers to people who are confused and threatened by the complexity of the world and who have been deliberately terrorized, terrorized by the state, their governments and the media um, into saying, okay, I'm going to find a way out. You know, when you, when you interview, when you talk to these people like Just Stop Oil, when they get up and they make their statements, as you said, they say, I know we're being extreme, but the alternative is the end of the world. So that is a primary tenet of fascism, that the, the end justifies the means. And any government that says, okay, we're going to take away all your wealth, we're going to take away your money, we're going to take away your housing, we're going to reduce your energy consumption, but we're doing it because we're going to save the planet. You know, saving the planet is kind of the ultimate you know, end game, isn't it? Um, I think it's also, this doesn't know only about uh, making a compliant and complacent population. It's also with that, what they do with it. And I think one of the ways to understand this is that now every crisis is turned into a health crisis. Everything's turned into a threat to your health. Um, if you say, if you get someone up saying, a woman sort of saying, I think it's very important that we have women-only spaces. And actually, I don't want grown men walking into my daughter's changing room um, and getting his penis out. It's things we would think of as fairly rational and also moral kind of stances. And someone will turn around and say, who is pro-trans rights, will say, in doing so, you're denying the very existence of trans people. Um, that's a characteristic of ideological thinking, as described by Hannah Arendt, where you go from a first premise, which then justifies completely ludicrous and irrational conclusions which are made from that. Wanting a mother, wanting her daughter to be able to, be able to change at school or in the local uh, baths and not be confronted by uh, a male man um, 
is not denying the existence of people who identify as transsexual. Um, and yet these are the kind of the arguments that are given to us. If, if, if the consequences of any form of disagreement, if I go, well, <clears throat> do you think we should really be in, uh, um, implementing the, the, uh, the political and technological, technological changes required by Gender 2030 and its commitment to reducing having net zero emissions by 2050, should we think about that, what implications that's going to have on, on, on the populations of the world, not just in, in Europe and the West, but in the global South? And who do you think is going to be benefiting by this? Even asking those questions, now I am causing the death of the planet. If I kind of, you know, have any kind of questions about woke or trans rights, I'm denying the existence of people. So when you make questioning itself, every crisis becomes a health crisis, you take into possession um, the population itself. The population has to be protected from ideas which are not merely um, unorthodox, but which are a threat to our existence. If I question the ULEZ scheme being imposed on London by Sadiq Khan, which is going to impoverish huge numbers of people who actually have to move around um, the city, um, make it almost impossible for them to work as far as I can make out, we are endangering the planet. So everything is rushed up immediately to the most extreme. Um, you know, um, one of the things I don't write about in my book, because it hadn't come out yet, but which I've been writing about more recently, is the World Health Organization's Pandemic Treaty. It's got a long title, Pandemic Prevention Preparedness um, Response Treaty. Um, and it's a kind of an extraordinary document, which the UK has been one of the primary signatories to, and one of the the state which is trying to make it legally binding to all its signatories. And I think there's something like uh, 190, you know, pretty much the whole world is going to sign up to it. And one of the things it says is that health, it defines health as a state of complete well-being. And it now says under the terms of the treaty, health as so defined, I mean, that's a completely utopian idea itself, isn't it? It's a completely meaningless definition of something which an organization concerned with Defend, uh, protecting the health of the population. It's a completely work, you know, meaningless definition of a working, a working definition, if you like. But it says <clears throat> that definition of health is now a fundamental right. That is, it's not one of those conditional rights, which we found out under lockdown meant almost nothing. Rights of freedom of expression, rights of uh, freedom of thought, uh, rights of freedom of movement, rights of freedom of association. Under the European Convention on Human Rights, which we're about to leave in this country, those are defined as conditional rights, and they're conditional upon what the state, that is the government, decides is the common good, the ultimate good. But the, under the WHO Treaty, health is going to be a fundamental right. It's not subject. And it even says that the right to health is irrespective, or regardless, I think is the term they use, of our age, our race, our religion, and also our political beliefs or our economic and social circumstances. What this suggests to me is <clears throat> even if they reduce us to poverty under lockdown, even if they take away our belief that actually a mask made from an old t-shirt is not going to stop <laughs> a microbe one ten thousandth of an inch wide, no matter what I have my political beliefs or even religious beliefs of people who you know, don't believe in being injected, for instance, with experimental gene therapies, which strikes me as a very scientific belief, not a religious one. All of this under the terms of the treaty is going to be irrespective, is going to be regardless. It's not, the, it's not justification for saying, actually, 
I disagree with this international technocracy. So <clears throat> when every crisis has made a high health crisis and not addressing that crisis is actually threatening the lives of the people under consideration or even their health and expanding out to the health of the planet, the saving the planet, you've created a, a form of governance which is not only non-democratic, it's actually anti-democratic. Um, and once that ideology has spread through society, as it has in our parliament, our education system, and our media, and our cultural industry, um, the very terms for debate, and also our civic society, the terms for contesting this have been removed. And that, I would say, is that's what a totalitarian system is. You come across a very interesting word there, well-being. You know, well-being has is a word that we've been talking about a lot. Um, I, I used to think it went back to the name person fight, where Scottish government were pushing for a creepy or well-being child-watching scheme, where every child in the country had a state-appointed overseer. Um, and this was all being based on well-being. Well-being was everything. We must intervene in a child's life if there is a potential future threat to well-being. Okay. Many questions arose. How, how do you know about future threat? And of course, what do you mean by well-being? And they couldn't define it. So they, they, because they couldn't define it, they, they, they split it into, I think it was eight, was the acronym SHANARI. And each of these eight things, well, many of them, were themselves notably vague, as was noted by the uh, United Kingdom Supreme Court as they threw out the legislation. And um, the, some of the advocates of well-being, the, the, the leaders, the contemporary leaders in the, I, the idea of well-being, uh, when they're asked to define it, one of them was on Radio 4, you know, the, the, the description was, well, well-being's not a beach you can lie in, lie on. It's a dance. Right? What does any of this actually mean? In terms of public policy, what does it mean? It means anything you want, of course. But we're now seeing if well-being, if health is an absolute right, which the state can then essentially enforce and control people to make sure this absolute right is, is, is achieved and presumably use violence if it's obstructed. Um, because it's the same as thou shalt not kill, right? We could use violence to stop people killing one another. Therefore, if this is of the same standard, presumably we can use violence as a state to ensure the health outcomes. And if health is now defined as well-being, well, so is the economy, right? The Scottish government is always talking about how we must change the economy from something based on economics, ugh, we don't want to talk about that, to something based on well-being. It's going to be a well-being economy. Now, again, nobody can define what this is. What's the difference between a well-being economy and an economy? Right? And, and there is, there's no precision. There's simply a vague emotional call to, well, everyone will be happy in the new utopia. And, and if you're in the way of this, you're on the wrong side of history, you need to get out of the way, you're 
literally killing people. And it is very much presented in there. So we're, if, we're seeing not only um, everything becoming a health problem, that everything includes the economy. So what used to be the defining battleground of, of political ideas through the 70s and 80s in my lifetime, for sure, um, what used to be the area where an American politician famously said, it's the economy, stupid, right? what actually matters, we're now seeing that's becoming subsumed under the term well-being, and that's subsumed under the term health. And I don't think you're exaggerating when you're saying everything becomes a health problem. Because obviously, if the economy goes down, then people will become sicker because they'll be unhappy and they'll be on the dole. And, well, this is a health issue, and we, if we accept the state has the right to act in a totalitarian way over health, then ultimately it can act in a totalitarian way over everything, because everything, including what you think, will affect your health. Because if you have unhealthy thoughts, well, this is this is going to have a bad a bad health outcome. It's surely uh, reasonable for the government to act and and change your thoughts. And this takes us into the gulags. This takes us into the sort of thought modification that Maoism. I was associated very strongly with. This takes us into totalitarianism in the, in, in, in the most um, extreme form because your thoughts, your beliefs become fair play for a well-being dedicated government to go and, go and correct because, you know, you're, you're, you're suboptimal. Let's um, go into an, an, another quote from your book. Is... Am I overstating that, or do you see this? Do you see these, no? I, these I agree. This, this term, this term, well-being, has been kind of it's been coming in everywhere, hasn't it? Um, it's, uh, you know, after the after lockdown, after people have been locked down for two years, and the kind of the the economic devastation that wrecked on people's lives, and the kind of the psychological effect of it as well, of having kids being masked and, you know, not going to school for and people having to, you know, the entire devastation wrecked by lockdown. This is even before we get onto um, the gene therapies and stuff. You know, all these adverts started coming up sort of saying, you know, are you suffering? How do you, how do we address this through your well-being? Um, being, being impoverished by the government is now not an economic issue. It's about how do you adjust to your new impoverishment? Um, if you don't agree with what the government is saying, it's like, how can we bring you around to agreeing with us? It pathologizes dissent. If I disagree with environmental fundamentalism, as I do, and I've written about, um, it's because I am mentally unbalanced. That's effectively what it's saying. Um, in my um, <clears throat> new books that are coming out, maybe it's just later, one of the articles was uh, about this appalling document that was produced by some Oxford academics who were <clears throat> in the field of psychology and also gene therapy, effectively. Um, and the government put out a, uh, a kind of a call for how we can get around the human rights barriers to enforced vaccination, enforced injection, enforced gene therapies. And this bunch of Oxford um, professors got together and they went through and they wrote this article, which I kind of pull apart. Um, and they said that basically what we can do is we can um, 
under the Mental Health Act, I think it's 1983 or 1986, we can section members of the public who don't agree with being injected with gene therapies. I've read a lot of terrifying stuff over the last three years, but that document is definitely up there, probably with the pandemic treaty. I think those two are the two most terrifying documents I've read. And they're both around this similar idea that if you disagree with this manufactured consensus, whether that's manufactured through the government or the media or so on, you don't have a difference of opinion. You are mentally ill. And therefore, we have to correct you whether you like it or not. You know, recently we had uh, Tony Blair at the um, uh, the last uh, few months ago, wasn't it? The last annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, talking about imposing digital ID on the whole world, and it was quite clear that he wasn't asking countries, including our own country, whether we wanted to have a digital ID uh, imposed on us. And he said quite openly, "This is going to have um, um, applications beyond health." Um, health, well-being, it's about biopolitics. Biopolitics is where you take possession of the body of the population, regardless of their brain, what they want, what their opinions are, or most important of all, what their rights are as a citizen under a democratic state. Uh, their rights to disagree with you, their rights to speak their disagreement, their rights to go and meet other people. All these are erased when under something like the Pandemic Treaty, the World Health Organization, and the individual states, the member states who will impose um, their decision, says, we are doing this for your own good. We are going to enforce you. We're going to force you to have an injection. We're going to make it a requirement to wear a mask. We're going to lock down and destroy your economy. We're going to impose digital ID. We're going to impose central bank digital currency, if you like. All these things can be imposed because it's for your well-being. So I think it's, yeah, I think that term, it is absolutely everywhere at the moment. Um, and it renders the old politics of left and right, you know, which doesn't exist anymore, um, completely redundant. Um, <clears throat> you know, one, perhaps one of the most scary developments of that is what's happened. I think it's just about happened, hasn't it? Has it been passed in Ireland? They've got this hate speech bill uh, where if you even possess on your computer, presumably a book, you know, they're talking about the books on my shelf. Um, um, that if this is considered hate speech, it's again another undefined, all-encompassing term like well-being, that you can be arrested and that information can be taken away from you. Um, you know, when we use when I use terms like totalitarian, you do as well. I'm not joking. You know, these are totalitarian measures. Um, the difference with historical totalitarianism is it's going to be done by a matrix of technology and programs, which we've never seen before. Um, we're not going to have. We don't have to have, you know, the Gestapo coming around and knocking our door in the in the night. They will simply inform me that because of something I've written or something I've read or something I've taught or something my child has told someone that I said in the, in the, in the, at school or anything like that or something I have a, a chat online. Or God knows, maybe I'm heard in a pub that suddenly my bank account has been suspended. You know, these are realities which are upon, upon us, um, and I think we have to, you know, we have to face up to them. Yes, in Scotland, there's a hate crime bill that is so grievous that it's not actually yet been put into practice. It's been passed by the Parliament, but it's not actually put into practice, and, and it includes um, what you say around your own dinner table. If that's reported to authorities, and uh, it's 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 determined to be. Uh, hateful or, or likely to promote hate, and of course, none of these things are defined. Um, 
then uh, it, it, the 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 uh, the uh, state can act upon you to uh, save presumably the rest of your family from your uh, appalling opinions. That is, is about as totalitarian as things get, and that's uh, still on the, on the statute book, albeit not in practice, in Scotland. Scotland and Ireland um, are quite similar in many regards with the, the, um, the, the willingness that with which they are surrendering to the woke ideology, whether it's because they are formerly religious countries who have lost their faith and are looking for another one, whether it's just it's part of small country syndrome where they're looking to have a, a presence on the international stage by being um, by being superior, by being more obedient, by being um, more righteous as the woke ideology defines righteousness and um, therefore earning for themselves some form of respect that they perhaps don't feel they're earning in other ways. I'm not quite sure what's driving it. Scotland's always been an early adopter of ideas. This can be both good and bad. Uh, whether it's the Reformation or the Enlightenment or the woke ideology, we seem to be at the forefront of accepting this um, and of course, with the woke ideology, this is, I would argue, very bad. Um, just before we leave um, the issue of uh, the, the well-being economy and the, the, the changes we're seeing to matters economic, uh, you, you cover this also in your book. You, you quote here, um, uh, you quote um, Fabio Vichy, um, talking about historical fascism, and he writes, a, a cornerstone of historical fascism was industry controlled by government whilst remaining privately owned. It is quite astonishing that despite the overwhelming evidence of systemic revolving doors between public and private sector, most public intellectuals have not yet realised that this is where we are heading. Right? And this is, this is one of the things that makes, that makes fascism quite difficult to pin down because... Um, the, the right is reassured by the fact to say, look, we've, we've still got private property, right? It's not, it's not communism. And the left is reassured by, look, it's state control. We're not letting the nasty capitalists do what they want. They, they're, they're completely controlled by legislative, uh, administrative, and bureaucratic means. We're, we're, we're the boss. They're not the boss. And it rather turns off... Um, the areas where opposition should come from, where people actually believe in something, are saying, well, actually, hang on, I've got a problem with that. Because it's this all-things-to-all-people malleable ideology. It's not really one thing or the other. And um, looking at, for example, Hitlerian Germany, um, the degree to which the state dictated everything that happened in the factories was astonishing. And if the nominal owner objected, he would find himself the ex-nominal owner. As I think uh, Mr. Junkers, who made aeroplanes, uh, he was one of the first factory owners to um, to lose his factories because he didn't go along with uh, with what the, the, the party uh, was instructing. Um, you also quote the, the awful um, Israeli academic uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari in this uh, book. He, in, um, 
commenting the some sort of latter day Joseph Goebbels, which I thought was um, uh, quite appropriate. And the quote is, it's in the industrial revolution of the 19th century, hot humanity learned to produce with stuff like textiles and shoes and weapons and vehicles. And this was enough uh, for the very few countries that underwent this revolution fast enough to subjugate everybody else. What we are talking about now is like a second industrial revolution, but the product this time will not be textiles and machines or vehicles or even weapons. The product will be humans themselves. We are basically learning to produce bodies and minds. Bodies and minds are going to be basically the two main products of the next wave. If there's a gap between those uh, that know how to produce bodies and minds and those who do not, then this gap will be far greater than anything which we've been seen before in history. So he's talking about... Now, hey, I, I think he's actually well off beam. I mean, he's a public intellectual, but I think he talks more rubbish than any other public intellectual currently on the scene. But he's talking about um, uh, changes to society coming around from, uh, from technological change. And this technological change, as we've seen from historical fascism, is going to be state-directed, state-controlled, but in nominal private hands with vast amounts of private wealth to be earned by the ideologically compliant. So this couples personal greed and quite a lot of nasty human traits with the objectives of the state. This is the this is the genius of fascism. It takes the worst of humanity and couples it to the objectives of totalitarianism. And it makes it more threatening than, than perhaps communism, which tends to collapse more rapidly and generate more obvious signs of, of distress and decay, uh, perhaps at an earlier stage. And as a result, can be maybe resisted more effectively. Communism also had a specific ideology that rather spelled out how they wanted to go about things, and that didn't work. And that's something you can argue against, whereas the, the woke ideology, there is no... There is, there is no agenda that's actually spelled out. It's just, it's all movement. We're going to go towards um, the utopia, don't ask too many questions about the details, you just got to believe. So we're seeing an increasing uh, fascist takeover of what, what has historically been a free market, privately owned capitalist system in the West. And we're seeing it um, being directed towards ideological aims which are presented as being driven by technology but are not being driven by technology, are being, being driven by decisions and decisions made in the global organisations, the, the tax-exempt foundations um, and organisations such as the World Economic Forum and the UN. Is that a, is that a, a reasonable summary of the, of the, um, of the economic uh, direction of travel? Yeah, I think so. I think I, I generally agree with you. Um, I mean, what's his name? Harari is a, is a strange, repulsive little man. Um, he is exactly what Gerber. But I think, like a lot of intellectuals, he, he places too uh, too much emphasis on technology. Um, and when he talks about 
um, producing bodies and minds, which reminds me of Tony Blair talking about winning hearts and minds, you know, it's the similar sort of idea. Um, I think he's talking a bit like, um, um, uh, what did you, Aldous Huxley, he saw the sort of the future revolution coming through um, a kind of a transformation of the biological, um, uh, you know, what, what we are as human beings. Um, and there's, I guess, you know, there's, there's definitely an, an aspect of that in terms of this technology becoming part of us now. But my own view is that the real change, the production of bodies and minds is not going to come technologically so much. It's going to become through ideological changing and also through 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 um, mechanisms and compliance, which are, have a technological basis like central bank digital currency. Um, that is a system of total control over people. And it really doesn't matter what you think. You don't have to invade bodies when your money is, you know, completely in control of central banks uh, or digital ID and things like that. So I think in that respect, respect um, the new technologies are producing <clears throat> not new bodies and minds, but new mechanisms of compliance. But to go back to, you know, what you were saying about, about the economy, there's a great quote from um, an art historian, actually, called um, uh, T.J. Clark. And he published a book in 1999 called Farewell to an Idea. And it was about the history of modernism. And he ended it close towards the end. He says, whether or not the age of revolutions is over, the age of state formation has just begun. I think, you know, we've been told by neoliberalism, one of the uh, tenets of our, our neoliberalism is the dismantling of the state, that we'd have sort of a big society, you know, the kind of the David Cameron sort of thing. Um, I don't think that's at all. I think what we're seeing over the last few years, very, very rapidly, is this transformation and this enormous expansion of the power of the state. And it's done that through its merger with corporations, which, as you say, is one of the definitions of fascism. You know, Mussolini's favorite, uh, famous quote, which may be apocryphal, that fascism is when you can't pass a cigarette paper between the interests of corporations and the interests of the government. And that's definitely what we've got now. Um, the, the state is now, has been for a long time, but it's now... It's, it's authoritarianism is allowing it to um, is allowing the corporations which are driving it to turn their decisions into laws, um, which is where you know where this great uh, uh, authoritarianism has come from. But I think at the same time, why we have this vast increase in laws under which we're uh, we're being forced to live, and also the nature of the laws, like hate laws, which are penetrating right into, you know, as you said, the example of the kitchen table, what you're sitting around talking to your parents. We've got that. But on the other hand, at the other end of the scale, the corporations themselves are operating within a kind of an anarchist space. You know, the state is more and more authoritarianism. The society is more and more totalitarianism. But the corporations now are absolutely out of control. They don't seem to have any kind of um, limits to what they can do. Um, you know, the behavior of these corporations like uh, Morgan Stanley, BlackRock, um, you know, JP Morgan and so on in the Ukraine, who are basically going in there and, you know, taking over the economy and buying up the assets and so on. You know, the, the oil companies are going in and stuff like now. And then, you know, all these enormous amount of, you know, so-called aid and guns and armaments that we're sending Ukraine because we're so generous and we're to defeat the Russians are now are now being kind of sold on by shell companies set up by Ukrainian ministers and they're selling them to arm dealers around the world. You know, this is absolute anarchy. It's a kind of, um, you know, it's, it's the anarchy of, of, of corporate anarchy or corporate capitalism at work. Um, so I'm, I'm always struck where, 
you know, that we've been constantly told by the government that we need law and order. You know, we are the party of law and order. I think that's come back to Labour now, isn't it? You know, we're going to cut. You know, at the moment we got Rishi Sunak saying we're going to cut down on 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 um, uh, on on, uh, on corruption, <laughs> which is a good one. And yet, at the same time, these um, because these governments are now merely the administrative bodies of international technocracies who are operating under this new paradigm new political economy, which is called stakeholder capitalism. The role and function of our elected governments and the state apparatus is to keep us under greater and greater control. But in doing so, they have completely yielded whatever control they ever once had over the global corporations who make up this stakeholder capitalism. The model of stakeholder capitalism is that set up in March 2020, when the the lockdown was imposed, and the World Health Organization declared this pandemic, when there was something like 17 people whose deaths had been attributed to it in the world. Um, And at the same time, the World Health Organization merged with the WEF, and the WEF announced the COVID Action Platform Group, which was at the time 1,100, now it's up to about 1,200 of the most powerful companies in the world from both the West and the East. Um, it's got as many, not as many, but it's got all the big Chinese corporations and their state corporations as it does uh, Western banks. And it's primarily made up of not of industrial manufacturers, as you might suspect, but of banks, of asset managers, of um, information technology companies, of the most powerful corporations in the world. And they are the ones running the world. They are the ones who create, who compose they are the stakeholders in stakeholder capitalism, and it's they who make up the international technocracies, who issue these orders, who come up with these ideas like 15-minute cities, which the state then is merely imposing upon us. Um, so on the one hand, we're living under more and more draconian laws and restrictions, not just merely on our movements and our actions, but on our very thoughts. At the same time, the people who are ultimately deciding these uh, making these decisions, the corporations themselves are living in a kind of an anarchist paradox. It's not an anarchist; it's a it's a chaos. It's a kind of a chaos in which they're able to compete with each other. To you know what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment? They're basically privatizing an entire country, and they're doing it very very quickly. Um, it's going to be worse than what happened to Russia after the breakup of the Soviet Union, when you know all the oligarchs emerged from this. Um, you know, from this this privatization sorry privatization of assets the same thing's going on now but because the media is completely taken over by these corporations as, as well nobody very few people know what's actually going on um, so I think the to go back to this quote we're in the age of state formation is changing the state now has become an intermediary no intermediary is the wrong word because that suggests there's a kind of a movement both ways. But it's become the administration, not of our government. We don't elect a government which then uses the state to implement things which are either protecting us or benefiting us. The government now has been, I know, in effect, erased. The government has merely become the administrative body of the state. But the real government, this world government, and they're using these terms openly now. Klaus Schwab, I think it was in was it March or April, he went to the world government in Dubai, the World Government Conference. Um, the kind of the talk that was coming out of the WEF annual conferences this year, everyone was talking about a global governance, um, a one one system. 
um, which of course was to save the planet. Um, these are the ones who are, who are running now, and they don't seem to have any kind of controls on them at all from our governments or the state itself. Uh, Simon, I've been successful in getting through just around about half of uh, the ground I wanted to cover with you today, uh, and uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, that's been tremendous. Um, I wonder if we can impose on you one more time, if, if we could arrange a follow-up to this so we could cover the second half of your book. Uh, I thought your summary there that what we have now is a situation where real government is world government is the is 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 a is a is a beautifully compact uh, way of explaining uh, the nature of the problem that we're facing. Um, and I'd like to expand on that if you can uh, join us again in maybe a week or two, whenever's convenient for you, so that we can pick this conversation up. Uh, would that be okay? I think that would be lovely. Thank you very much. I really enjoy that because the. The second, hand, the second part of the book moves on to other things, things like morality and how we can fight back about this. And this is important. Um, it's important. I try to paint a picture of what is lying for us in the future, but that doesn't mean that I think it's going to happen. And we should never forget that human beings still run the world. We just have to find out how to reclaim both our humanity and our grasp on the world as well. So, yeah, I'd love to come back and talk to you about the second part. Lovely. Until then, Simon, thank you very much.